Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Today's, uh, I'm going to read today's passage. It's uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must not steal no longer. Excuse me. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something that is youthful, useful, with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not, uh, do not let anyone or any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Transformation is something that takes time. And yet we live in a world that often wants things in an instant. We hear stories of success, maybe they're of leaders or musicians or artists or athletes or something else, and we can assume that the end product is the entire story. You know, this, this person was just born with certain gifts, and then they used that gifts, and there's no more to the story than that. And when we believe that, we then assume that, you know, I could be like that too. The only problem is I wasn't born to the right family. I didn't have the right circumstances around me. I didn't have the opportunities along the way that this person had. And that's the only reason why my life is different from theirs. You know, maybe you watched the World Series this past week and a certain play happened and you thought, well, I mean, that, I could do that. Or I could have done better than that guy did. Maybe you've listened to a song and you thought, there's not much going on here. I could have written that song. If I just had a little more time. Maybe you've listened to a leader or a CEO of some company give a talk on the leadership principles they've learned along the way, and you think, that's just common sense. Everyone knows to do that. Or maybe you've uh, watched a movie and, and seen everything that went into it, or a YouTube video, and you thought, I've got a pretty good camera on my phone. I think I could, if I set aside the time, I could make that if I wanted to. And in a world where so many things happen quickly, whether it's instant meals we put in the microwave or two-day shipping from Amazon, we can assume that everything is supposed to work that way, that it's supposed to be quick and easy. But when we make that assumption, we tend to just see the end product without seeing the rest of the story. We, we see the end product without seeing all the work that has been done to lead up to that point. We see the success without the decades of work and repetition Transformation takes time in all areas of life, it seems. We might not like it. It might not always be easy. It might not always make for the most exciting story. But life is not just about mountaintop moments where we achieve great things. So often it is more about those moments along the way of daily practices that prepare us for transformation over time. 
And if that is true for all of life, or at least a great deal of it, it should not shock us when it is true of the Christian life as well. Throughout the second half of Ephesians, from chapter 4 towards about the middle of chapter 6, Paul will use the imagery of walking repeatedly as his framework, his main image, to describe what it means to follow Jesus. And walking, you might know intuitively, is not something that is very rapid. The average human walking speed is three miles per hour. You don't get many places quickly at three miles an hour, but that is the pace at which God apparently calls us to move as we walk with him alongside one another. The old preacher Fred Craddock once said that when young when he first got into ministry when he first began following Jesus he dreamed that following Jesus was going to lead to some great amazing moment one act of great commitment and bravery and faithfulness to demonstrate how committed he was to Christ but he said that after 45 years of following Jesus he had come to realize that life with Jesus was not about making one grand payment, one grand demonstration, writing one big check to demonstrate your commitment to Christ. Instead, it had been much more like spending 45 years getting up every day and writing one little check that paid the same amount over time, just much more slowly. And for most of us, that is the sort of life God calls us to. Not one that is dramatic and flashy, but one where we give ourselves to Christ each and every day, where we walk with him three miles an hour every day as over time his transformation takes root in us. And the passage we looked at last week ended with this call to take off our old self and put on our new self, to leave behind the life we had known before we met Christ and take on this resurrected identity and all the fullness that God has called us to be. And in this passage, Paul is building off of that thought to give us a sense of what that actually looks like, what it actually means to put on the new self. He's spoken about what God is calling us away from and what he is calling us towards, and now in the passage Ben has just read for us, he walks through what the Ephesians are to do if the calling he has described for them is to actually take place in and among them. And you might have noticed, even just from hearing the text read, or if you have the text open in front of you right now, that it is a passage that is filled with a lot of commands. Most of the verbs in this passage that we're focusing on this morning are imperatives, or as a friend of mine likes to call them, bossy words, commands, words that are telling you to do something. And you might also notice as we read that there's a lot of negative imperatives in there. It's, it's not just here's what to do, but a whole lot of don't do this, stop doing that, and things of that nature. And commands like that don't always sound all that enjoyable. It sounds like someone slapping your hand telling you to stop. And Paul might sound bossy in this passage, but before we get too put off, we should notice that he often pairs the positive and the negative together. He is not just slapping our hand, telling us to stop and then sit there and be quiet. He is, he's showing us something better so that we can have the fullness of life in Christ that God desires to give us. This is not a self-help passage. This is not a passage just focused on behavior modification not a checklist of all the things we need to get better at this week. This is a calling to step more deeply into life with Christ. And it's a life that we step into by grace. Paul does not describe a life of us being told over and over again what not to do. It is a life where we have already been given God's acceptance in Jesus. 
And because he has done that, we are now called into this life where God works in and through us as we are transformed into his likeness. It is not just a life of avoiding sin, walking with God as he transforms us. It is not a life of self-help, but a life of walking with Christ as he empowers us to look like him in all things. So I want to walk through the commands, the imperatives, the bossy words of this passage, because that's what Paul says. But I want to look at it with the knowledge that he is not just telling us no. He's telling us what to avoid. He's telling us what will lead to our destruction. And he's offering us instead the better picture of life in Christ together. This is not a passage just calling us to be nicer. It is a passage calling us to look like Jesus in all that we do so that God may be glorified in and through us. And so the first command that Paul gives to that end is the command in verse 25 to speak truthfully to one another, to put off falsehood and speak truthfully because we belong to one another. We cannot have life together as God desires for us if we do not begin with truth. Because to lie is to cover up a part of who we are for the sake of self-preservation. When you come across a kid with chocolate on their face and the cookie jar is open and you ask them if they ate a cookie before dinner and they respond no, they are acting in self-preservation in that moment. They might not know the entire picture. They might not have thought it all through in their own minds, but they know that the truth is going to lead to their punishment and they'd rather put off that punishment for as long as they can and so they opt for a lie for the sake of self-preservation. And we don't get any better at this as adults. We claim to know something, we claim to be in the know when we are not because we want to be known as someone who is intelligent and wise and important and we think lying will get us there quicker than the truth. We're not entirely honest with our finances, with our taxes, with paperwork in general because it's easier. If we were to be truthful, it would take more time, more investment, we might have to part with more of our money and we don't want that so we settle for half-truths and outright lies. We tell people, maybe even at church, that life is great when it, it is not. Because we want to be seen as someone who has life altogether, that has it all figured out, and truth gets in the way of that image. Yet we are called to put off falsehood and speak truthfully, because lying conceals who we are. It prevents us from knowing the real us. It prevents us from show, sharing in life with one another as God desires for us. And our God is a God of truth. Scripture says it's impossible for God to lie. Jesus said he was the embodiment of truth. He said that the native language of the devil is lies. And so we don't want to dwell in them because it cuts ourselves off from the life God desires for us. Connection, relationship, life comes through honesty. I've sat in groups of people, maybe you have too, where no one wanted to admit it that anything was wrong. Everything was great. It was just one big game of who has the better life, who has the best life at the table, whose life is better than everyone else's. And that's fine at times, but that's not community. It's not the life God intended for his people. The life God desires for us happens when we admit that we don't have it all figured out. It begins when we connect with one another as we are, not as we wish we were or as we hope to one day be. And that's only possible when we put off lies and embrace the truth. And we do that because we belong to one another. Paul does not say here to stop lying because it's better to tell the truth, although it is better to tell the truth. 
He says, speak truthfully because we are all members of one body. You do not just need to be a truthful person for your own sake. You should be a truthful person because of the people that are sitting around you right now because they need you to be a truthful person. You should be a truthful person because it points you and those around you to Christ and the life he desires for us. We cannot truly connect with one another. We cannot truly have life. We can't truly encourage and love one another towards life in God if we do not commit to being truthful, if we do not commit to admitting when we are wrong, if we do not commit to admitting we don't have it all together, if we do not commit to confessing sin when it arises so that we can experience the grace of God at work in and around us. And when we are truthful with one another, it frees us from anger. Anger thrives when it is not dealt with. When it lingers, it creates division as people fight for their own way instead of the good of others. And I, you know, I tried to come up with an example from our world today of anger coming up with division, but I just looked around at our culture and everyone's so happy and peaceful and joyful all the time. I just come up with anything. Just have to imagine with me, and I might be joking as I say that. Anger causes division and sin. But if you notice in that verse, Paul does not say never to be angry. He says that when we are angry, to not allow it to linger. So that must mean that if nothing else, anger is not inherently sinful. We see Jesus get angry, so it can't be that all anger is bad, but it does mean that unchecked anger can cause problems for ourselves and others. There are moments when anger is justified, when we're angry at something that would also make God angry, such as sin or injustice in ourselves or in our world. But when anger becomes our regular posture, we are in danger. Anger's not sinful, but it can easily create an environment where sin can flourish. I think Dallas Willard was right when he wrote that there is nothing that can be done with anger that cannot be done better without it. Anger can be a good starting point. It can alert us to the fact that there is something wrong in us or in the world that we should do something about, but it is not the place we are to remain. Because if we do, it will lead us into sin. Instead, Paul says not to let the sun go down on your anger. And in Jewish thinking, sundown is the beginning of a new day. So while Paul is saying don't go to bed angry, he seems to also be saying to begin each day anew. Begin each day with mercy, just as Scripture says that God's mercies are new every morning. Don't lay in bed at night running through all the wrongs that are, have been made against you in that day and far beyond, stewing on how you can get even. Seek forgiveness and reconciliation right away. Address sin when it arises so that there can be healing. That's what it looks like to bear with one another in love, as this chapter has already commanded us to do. And when this is done, Paul says, the devil does not gain a foothold. And that might sound dramatic in a world that is so okay with anger. We might think, I just have a short fuse. People just need to get used to it. That's just how it is. That's just how I've always been. That's how it always will be. And Paul instead would say that when we allow anger to linger, we are seeding ground in a battle to our enemy. Life in Christ is a battle. One in which Christ has already won. Let me be absolutely clear on that. He has already conquered the rulers and powers of darkness, the powers of sin and death, but there is still a fight. And anger might feel good and justified at times. It might not feel like that big a deal, but it is willingly giving up the fight against an enemy that wants to destroy us. And that's a serious thing. 
but it does not have to be a fearful thing. Just as Paul has said that anger in itself is not sinful, he's also not saying that when we get angry, we're in danger of demon possession or something like that. Anger is an inroad for our enemy in a battle that he has already lost. He's not saying not to get angry because if so, the devil will get you. He's saying that you have already been delivered from the power of our enemy, and the only way you will lose that battle is to let him back in. You've been delivered from sin and death through the victory Jesus won at his death and resurrection. You've been bound to those around you in the body of Christ. Don't let your anger give way to sin. That gives the enemy an entry that he would not have otherwise. And in a world that seems to be fueled by anger, we're called to something different. We are called to something better. We're called to a life of forgiveness so that anger can bring healing and peace. And when we seek peace, we will give instead of take. The life of the church is not one where some people do most of the work and others float in and out and take for themselves. Everyone is called to be a part of the body of Christ as we build one another up. That's why Paul says in this passage that the thief should no longer steal. Stealing is taking for yourself. Steve is saying that what I have is not enough. I need more, and I don't care who I have to hurt or what rules or laws I have to break in order to get it. But the gospel says that we have a God that gives to us freely. That doesn't mean we always get exactly what we want, but it means that God who loves us more than we could ever know and knows all things gives us what we need in his perfect timing. That means we don't have to take, but we can give. We don't have to view others through the lens of what have you done for me lately or what am I going to get out of this, but through the lens of what can I do to make the grace of God more apparent in this situation. That means that there's much more going on in that verse than whether or not I have ever been convicted of theft by a court of law. It's less about the act of stealing and more about a mindset of giving. One scholar says, about this verse, that Paul is not likely referring to a thief stealing bread or a robber lying in wait for his victim. Rather, he imagines members of the church who might trick customers to pay a bit more or put a bit less food in the jar than what the customer rightly paid for. Paul may be concerned about the slave who does not return all the change from the purchase, rationalizing that her owner surely has more than she needs. Paul could have in mind the Christian leader who does not want to leave any money on the table and so extorts the highest possible interest from her debtors. This is about more than theft. It's about whether or not we view the world around us as something that exists for us to take from or something that exists for us to give towards because God has been generous to us. It's about whether we view the work we do as something we just have to do to keep the bills paid or as an opportunity to use the gifts God has given us for the sake of glorifying him and loving others. It's about whether or not we view those closest to us as people who are there to meet my needs or people that I've been called to love and serve as Jesus has loved and served me. It's about whether or not I view church as a place I go to once or twice a week or a family that I am a part of. Instead of taking, Paul tells us to work with our hands in order to share with those in need. Paul lived in a culture that looked down on manual labor, that saw it as something for the lower classes of society, something that you should try to escape from as quickly as possible. But Paul sees manual labor as something that has been redeemed by the gospel. He carried out this command by supporting his own ministry through making tents, and he calls us 
and the Ephesians and everyone that reads is to build one another up with our work. Work is not a necessary evil. On the other side of that, work is not a savior. It is a way to use the gifts God has given us to bless others. And that could be doing work that builds others up. That could be doing good work so that you can be generous with what you have earned so that no one among God's people is in need. However we do it, our work and the world is not something that exists for my sake, but is an opportunity to give to others so that they can be built up. And we will build others up in all things, including our words. If any group of people is going to be as tight knit as Paul calls the church to be in this book. They are eventually going to wear on one another. Even if you are with the person that you get along with best in the entire world, your best friend, your spouse, whoever it might be, my guess is if you are with each other for every waking moment for very long, there will come a point where you will not be completely infatuated with them, to say the least. There will be annoyances, there will be frustrations, there will be whatever it might be, and those tend to come out through our words. When they're not dealt with, they show themselves through snide comments, through sarcastic remarks, through gossip, through slander. And Paul says in response to that, not to let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouths. And that word that's translated there, unwholesome, is a word that refers to something that is rotten or spoiled. Paul doesn't give us a list of words here that are never to be said, but my guess is you have been around people, or maybe, unfortunately, you have been the person who has driven people away with your words. For the last couple of years that I was in college, I preached on the weekends at this little church, and as all good churches have been commanded by God to have, we had coffee and donuts before worship every week. Just That's, that's kudos to you all as well. And, and because it was a small church pretty often we would also have cartons of milk for all of the kids in the church and there was one week for some reason I happened to be the first person in the building that Sunday and I distinctly remember I came up the stairs and when I got to the top of the stairs into our lobby a smell hit me that I had never smelled before that was not good and come to find out the week before there was a kid that had drank about half of their chocolate milk and then set it down on the table and forgot about it And then it sat there all week, in July, in Missouri, in a room with no air conditioning. (laughs) It was not a pretty sight when I came across it. So I got someone else to deal with it because I wasn't, I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't remember what actually happened, but let's be honest, that's probably what happened. And the reaction I had when I entered that room and was hit with a wall of rotten milk smell is the sort of reaction that Paul is describing in these verses of the, the effect that these words have on those around them that he's describing in these verses. I think there's more to what Paul is saying here than just here's a list of words that you should never say, although there are probably words that should always be left unsaid. It's about how we use our words. Do they build others up or do they tear them down? Do they draw people close or do they drive them away? Do we tell stories to encourage other people or to make ourselves the hero? Do we have conversations where we are focused on the people that we are in conversation with or is it an opportunity for us to build ourselves up? Do we talk about the sin of others to them so that they can know grace or do we talk about it behind their back? 
The grace of God has called us to be gracious to one another with our words. Whatever we say and whoever we say it to, we are to say it so that it can benefit them. Like every other part of following Jesus, our words are for the sake of others so that they can be built up into fullness in Christ. Our words matter. And when we don't use them well, Paul says in verse 30 that it grieves the Holy Spirit. And that's one of those passages where most of the time when we read it, we have a reaction to the effect of what in the world does that mean? It kind of sounds like Paul is saying, don't use bad words because when you do, it makes God sad. And you don't want to make God sad, do you? So just don't use bad words. And maybe that's a part of it, but I think there's more going on because you can't grieve something unless you are emotionally attached to it. I watched the World Series this year with pretty much complete detachment because I didn't care what was going on or who won or anything like that. Whitney asked me who I wanted to win, and I said, I hope everyone has fun. That's all. I don't know if that happened or not, but that's what I was hoping for. It was a very different story in 2011 when the St. Louis Cardinals were playing in the World Series in a very dramatic World Series with lots of emotional swings for me as an 18-year-old. It was not a great time always. It ended pretty well. But it was a very different reaction because there was personal investment in it. My guess is if you read the obituaries in the newspaper, you have different reactions depending upon whether or not you knew the person that you're reading about. You grieve when you have a relationship with something that is not functioning as it was designed to function. You might feel bad when you watch someone else go through something difficult, but when it affects you personally, it's a very different story because it brings grief. And I say all of that to say that because God relates to us personally through his Holy Spirit, when we reject God's will for us, it brings grief because God desires more for us. God created us for life with him, and when we resist that, when we fight against the work of God's Spirit in our lives, it grieves the Holy Spirit, not just because of, oh, it makes him sad type of thing, but because the Holy Spirit wants more for us, because we are rejecting the life that God created us for. This is like the grief a parent might feel towards a rebellious child. The parent knows what's best for the child, and the child is rejecting that, and therefore it brings pain. The Holy Spirit that wishes to make us new in Christ grieves when we reject that calling. He's calling us into life with our God, which will be made complete on the day of redemption when Christ returns to make all things new. And so in our words, in our actions, in the way we live life together, may the way that we walk be in congruence with the life God desires for us instead of rejecting that life and producing grief. All of this these commands, this passage, it concludes with verses 31 and 32, some of which repeats what we have already heard. Paul says, get rid of bitterness, get rid of holding on to grudges, get rid of rage and anger, get rid of brawling and slander, get rid of tearing down one another, whether it is physically or with words, as well as every form of malice or wickedness. Bitterness is to be rejected so that we can experience forgiveness and reconciliation. Rage and anger, wrath that is out of control is to be done away with because it's not the sort of anger that is helpful in growing us into fullness in Christ. Brawling and slander have no place in God's people because we are called to build one another up, not to tear one another down. Malice, wickedness pulls us away from pursuing the good things God has called us to. 
in all this, we are called to get rid of everything that might distract us from walking worthy after the calling of Christ. And all these commands end with the most significant one of all in verse 32, where Paul says to forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Everything in this passage, all the commands, all the bossy words can be summarized by saying we are to treat one another as Jesus has treated us. Jesus was the perfect example of all these commands. We speak truth with one another because Jesus embodied truth perfectly. We don't allow anger to lead into sin because Jesus was angry and yet it was with anger that was righteous and just. We give instead of take because Jesus gave of himself for us. We build one another up because the words of Jesus always call their hearers into life. We do not resist the calling of God and grieve the Holy Spirit because Jesus has sealed us for redemption. We're kind and compassionate. We forgive because God in Jesus has forgiven us more than we would ever need to forgive anyone else. This is the life we've been called to in Christ together. This is not a life of cultivating personal piety. This is not a life of living on top of a mountain by ourselves, spending our days in quiet prayer and solitude and contemplation. It is a life lived day by day in the hard work of community with one another. Acknowledging the reality that people around us are imperfect, just like how I am imperfect and you are imperfect and everyone else is as well. Paul was fully aware that imperfect people can cause problems and hurt amongst one another. And his solution was not to just get away from people you don't like. His solution is to invest more deeply in who God is and the life he's calling us to together. To model ourselves after Jesus so that everyone can see who God is and step into the fullness of the life he desires for us. We're called to love one another as God has loved us, to be gracious with one another, to treat others better than they deserve, because that is how God has acted towards us. This is not a life where wrongdoing is swept under the rug so that everyone can just move on, but it deals with sin so that grace can be given and reconciliation can come through the power of Christ. This is how we've been called to live. And my hope and my prayer is that we would be a community of people where that's the case. That we would be a community where people know the love and grace of God. It can be built into the fullness of Christ alongside others who are pursuing that goal as well. Because it's something we're supposed to do together. Following these commands does not mean you give and you don't get anything in return. As you forgive as you have been forgiven, the assumption is that you will be forgiven as Christ has forgiven. As you build others up with your words, you will be built up by the words of others. As you give towards others, they will give to you generously. I pray that everyone that comes to be a part of this group of imperfect people would experience that and would desire to give to others what they've received as a part of a group of people following Jesus together. Because our goal above all else is to imitate Jesus. Our goal as resurrected people is to live as the resurrected one lived. 
Jesus was gracious, loving, built others up, and that life culminated with his death and resurrection. And because he's done that, we've been invited into life with him. We've been invited to look to the needs of others, invited to show all people the fullness of life that is available to them in Christ. So may you know that yourself as an individual. May you demonstrate that to those around you. And if you need help, encouragement, if you're trying to figure out what that looks like, if you just need some encouragement, that is what we are here to do. We'd love nothing more than to talk with you, pray with you, encourage you to walk after the example of the resurrected Jesus as we seek to imitate him in all things. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the life that you have made available to us in your son, Jesus. We thank you that you have not only given us yourself, but you have given us one another. Brothers and sisters who, as imperfect as we are, are called to follow you alongside one another. So God, we ask for your wisdom and your spirit for each and every one of us in our walk. God, we all walk at different paces. We are all at different parts of the, of the journey but we trust that your spirit is present in us and among us. So help us to be people that embody all these things that this passage commands us to embody, not because we are really great people, but because you are a good God who has filled us with your spirit. May we be people who model this well. May we embody it well, not for our sake, but for yours that you may be glorified in and through us in all things as we look forward to that day when you will return and make all things new. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.